That little boy's dreams come true. Real and true. It's an amazing, beautiful thing. But so are his nightmares. And they're dangerous. Deadly. Can I get him back? My husband. I don't know. Wherever that thing comes from, it takes them with it. If they exist at all, it's only in Cody's mind. scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello everyone and welcome back to another fun-filled episode of the fear of God. That lovely podcast exploring the intersection between the horror genre and the Christian faith. I am one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse. Typically with me is fellow co-host, um, GWU alum, uh, Reed Lackey. But he just, he said something about needing to go take a quick nap. I want to, listen, I get it. I get it. I feel like I'm never not tired. So I do understand just the need for a nap. Ideally, it would have been during a less intrusive time, you know, but I mean, he's got, um, he's a father, he's a parent, he's a husband, like he's got work. I I get it. So if he needs to go take a quick snooze during the podcast recording, I guess we will be generous and permit that to him while he is dozing. Um, I did want to encourage you if you have not done this before. One, why? Two, I want to invite you to go to iTunes, leave us a rating, leave us a review. We love that. It helps, I don't know, in some weird algorithmic internet-y kind of way, us to grow and flourish and be fruitful and multiply, because that's what we're all about here at, here at The Fear of God. Um, in the meantime, Reed! Reed Hello! Hey, buddy, you, you look like fresh and ready to go like boy you look like I, a man who has who has re- rejuvenated himself through the act of sleep indeed I'm, i have indeed, i'm jealous i have in fact. i have gotten a great nap i napped all about and and i dreamed too i uh i dreamed all about butterflies and christmas trees like like and... like butterfly kisses like that bob carlisle song like, is that what you... Now you're... it's in my head, and I don't appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're no, welcome. 
not 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 at all like that not at all remotely like that Bob Carlyle song but anyway so yes I have uh I have been dreaming and sleeping and catching up and it's been it's been great I've got my beauty rest how about you how are you doing <laughs> I could use some beauty rest brother <laughs> um but I'm scared the canker man's gonna come out of a dude just, yeah 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 that's right so uh, for those who uh, I'm don't, good I'm good you're good you're good so I'm good enough I, oh I see good enough <laughs> for this conversation I, i'm i'm good enough for for what we for what um, we're doing <laughs> don't um, expect don't expect a whole lot turns out turns out a week was not quite long enough to fully get over what i'm suffering from okay all right i understand and and sympathize tremendously yes thank so, you so um so yes we are tagging back in on the series flannel graph flanagan and we are entering into the second installment in that series. Uh, last week we talked about Gerald's Game. And this week we are talking about uh, another of his films that is available on Netflix. There was another Netflix original film called Before I Wake. So, uh, Nathan. Reed. Before we get into all of that. Uh-huh. I just, I just have to ask you. What? What you watch and what you read and what you listen oh. <laughs> to. What you watch and what you read. Wow. All right, all right. We got to liven up. Reed, come back oh, to me. Sorry, sorry. Come sorry, back. Sorry, oh, my sorry, God. The kicker man's eating me. Yeah, um. No. <clears throat> what am I watching? What am I reading? What am I listening to? Um, Indeed, I'm. A, I got another trio for you. You like trios? Oh, yeah, hey, I oh. do. I do. Um, like, I was trying to think of famous singing trios, but literally none came to mind. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, they are not a famous trio, but they are a not really famous at all duo. But I love them. Um, one of my favorite bands, uh, husband and wife pair of musicians and songwriters who front the band over the rhine mm. just released <laughs> they just released to the public but the real fans have had it for about a month now oh um, boy their newest album called love and revelation um mm. i've followed karen and linford's work for geez louise 15 plus years now wow um they've got a number of wonderful albums this immediately ranks amongst them i just love what they do some of their material is featured in my christmas show mm. um you'll hear you'll hear it first if it happens but i've invited them to do a concert for the 15th anniversary of that christmas show in Ooh, 2020. now wow. they haven't like agreed by any means yet it's oh, still sure. yeah talking talking phase but I'm just trying to convey to you how much I appreciate this group. Of course. Um, of course. So they got a new album out, Love and Revelation. I love it. It's a revelation. Go listen to it. Um, <laughs> and then I've got, I'm just going to do these real quick fire and then I'm going to let you go. I, I watched sure. two documentaries recently, Riri. I do like a good documentary and both nice. of these qualify. One is about the peak of human achievement and the other is about the scraping the barrel of human detritus in, oh in wow so you know what's um, really funny i what? think i know 
based on recent documentaries that have been getting a lot of press, I think I know exactly what you're going to say. I wish Tell I could me. write it down. Tell me what I watched. Do you mind if I say Like, I'm going to feel uh-huh. so stupid. Okay, so What's I think the peak he, of human achievement one? I think Three, you watched Free two, Solo. One, Free Solo. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and, and then and what's the bottom of the barrel? I think you people? watched Fire. That's it! You guessed oh it! Yes. You know me so yes. well. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Free Solo. Still, they should have never fired Lord and Miller from this production. Um, it's pretty good, but it probably could have been, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's a deep um, cut. <laughs> it's not that deep, but, um, <laughs> uh, yes, free solo. Um, I'll start with fire cause it's about garbage people. Um, and garbage, fire. garbage fire. Yeah. 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 Oh my gosh, man. Like, Oh, I haven't seen it yet. I haven't actually seen either of those films. It's a, I want it's to. a, yeah. it's a worthwhile documentary. Like if you want to sure, feel, sure. feel like morally superior to these, these if you need that good you know, injection of you're better than these guys, you do. Yeah. Yeah. If you're like, wow, <laughs> I was feeling kind of down about myself, but these no guys more. will make you feel great. No, it's, it's, it's really disheartening. And mm-hmm. like, you don't know whether to like empathize with anyone whatsoever or to totally judge them harshly because oh wow but okay. on a on a purely like um legalistic kind of standpoint you judge them quite harshly oh um <laughs> okay i'm not arguing legalism is the is the you know way to go but sure yeah if yeah, you're that course. if you're that kind of person it's easy to do one it's just fascinating just just kind of the behind the scenes of how this thing came to not be so it's 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 worth a spin if you're kind of in the mood to just kind of get through some cool documentaries. Um, All, right. Peak, All right. Peak of human achievement, free solo is probably it. You could make a case that we could cover it on the fear of God and it would fit right in. I bet. I bet it's tense. I bet it's it is so nerve wracking. Stressful. Yeah. Um, I bet it is that stressful. I had a buddy who was watching it. And he was like, uh, I've been sweating the entire time I'm watching this movie. Oh gosh, I can imagine. Um, but, but it's, it's amazing. Like what yeah, this dude yeah. what this dude pulls off is staggering. Their ability to capture it on film is breathtaking. Mm. They the so the guys who are the camera operators are themselves climbers. So it's like yeah. there's this whole like cottage industry, you know, of people, you know, who do climbing, also filming others who do climbing. And there are shots of a guy on the ground, one of the camera guys on the ground, you know, with the the camera on El Capitan, the the right, rock, right. the rock face that he's climbing, and he's not looking through the camera. Like he won't observe what's going on that his camera is capturing. He's oh. that nervous for the guy. Oh wow! Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. crazy. Wow, it's in, it's intense. But uh, if if you're in the mood for just one documentary and it's between those two, I would say go free solo. Mm, um, okay, gotcha. I mean five. Fire is an interesting kind of like, hey, I got some time. I'm curious about these idiots. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Free solo will make you wonder if you've ever completed a thing worth achieve, you know, worth uh, oh. achieving, you know, an achievement in your life. But it's still worth watching. Understandable, understandable. No, I I badly want to see both of those. Um, okay, so I'm gonna cheat a little bit on on watching, reading, and listening to. So Uh-oh. I'm gonna bring up something. Um, it's not something that I've been, it is something I've technically been watching, but it's not a piece of media that I could point people to and have them, you know, uh, go and check it out. I've been watching and monitoring a debate that has been raging that, uh, the subject of which has hit our podcast a time or two. And, uh, I've been sort of following it and watching 
the differing factions. Uh, we just completed a series called Hashtag Netflix and Chills. And following the almost win of Roma, the Netflix original film Roma, for uh, it was nominated for Best Picture. It won Best Director, won, uh, I believe won Cinematography as well. Following those things, there has been a debate raging between people who are sort of skeptical of Netflix's authenticity in the uh, cinematic world and the Steven Spielbergs of the world who literally are campaigning for the Oscars to change their rules so that Netflix will no longer be eligible for Oscars. And I have been, so again, it's a bit of a cheat, but I have been actively participating in and watching this debate unfold. It's unfolding on social media. Um, He's going to, Steven Spielberg himself is going to be speaking before the Academy Board in early April when they have their big board meeting. And he is going to be actively trying to get the rules changed so that Netflix can no longer do their one week qualifying run and then be eligible for Oscars. For those of us who don't have the over-the-top streaming service lackey vision um, <laughs> and can't follow this with the level of specificity you are, what is the – like, certainly the rule isn't omit Netflix, right? It's got to be broader than that. I know it, it, he's – It is not. It is not omit Netflix, but here's what he basically is saying. He's saying Netflix is choosing to – right now to qualify for an Oscar – you have to be released in a certain, I don't know how many, you have to be right. released in a certain number of, of theaters for at least one week. Okay. Yes. Right. And it's at least one week in a certain amount of theaters. I don't know how many theaters, but at least one week in a certain amount of theaters. What Spielberg, as I understand it, is going to propose is that the rule has to be changed that he basically wants Netflix to do what Amazon does. What Amazon does is Amazon will release a film theatrically, sometimes for a month or two, and then it will hit its streaming platform. Netflix will sometimes release day and date theater and streaming at the same time. Sometimes it will release it to streaming and then later release it to theaters to qualify for Oscar uh, consideration. And basically Spielberg wants it to, to be, for a film to be eligible for Oscars. Again, this is, some of what's been speculated. I don't think he's gone on record yet, but what's right. been speculated is that he wants at least a month in the theaters before it hits the streaming platform, period. And if it doesn't do that, it won't qualify for Oscars. The reason there's such a hullabaloo about it doesn't just have to do with Netflix, is his rule change would also disqualify a vast amount of independent films sure. that have nothing to do with Netflix. That if you are an independent film that may or may not have streaming distribution, but you got into some small art house theater in the appropriate place for a week, and you can therefore get qualified to earn an Oscar nomination sure. for Best Documentary Feature so, or something, then there it is. So inquiring minds want to know, Reed, where, where does where does Lackey Vision cast its lot with this raging debate? I am 100% now in the camp of Netflix. 100%. I was going to say, I was 100%. worried. I thought we'd end up in a fight right now. Not in a fight, because no, 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 I don't no. care I that deeply. But I'm not... You didn't ask me this, but um, <laughs> no, I'm, that's it's it's part of this segment. I want to I want to hear your thoughts. I mean, I love Steven Spielberg. I think, and I don't. I would not say his concern or his inquiries need to be dismissed out of hand. That's not what I would suggest here. But sure, sure. I think I think the technology has radically, dramatically, irrevocably changed 
and and accelerated in such a way that to omit i don't know i i think it's i think both sides ultimately and this sounds real cynical it's about the money you know like it's mm-hmm. about i mean spielberg would spielberg would pitch it's about the purity of the cinematic experience okay but i'm sure all of the multiplexes are lined up right behind him you know what I mean? The right, the, right, the, of course. The AMCs, the Regals, the Carmikes, the whatnot are standing there saying, yay, Mr. Spielberg, because it's money. Netflix yeah, is course. saying, no, well, we want people to our service. We're making feature films. We're obeying the rules in order to get them to qualify. So it's about their money, right. too. Um, yeah, of course. I just think that. And it is about the money. Yeah. Just pragmatically, I mean, it's like, are we going to are we going to reboot the coal industry? No, we're not. <laughs> um it's it's a it's a dead industry you know like and that's where it should be which is not me saying the theater experience should be dead i love going to the theater i'm an oh I'm absolutely an, yeah i'm on amc's a-list brother you know yeah of course so of course. i i love that experience but i also understand like pragmatically speaking and even just production wise like the ability to make a feature film and have a now there is maybe a reasonable conversation around like you know, Netflix has a monopoly on the ability to do this, and that's a reasonable talking point. But, but there are some concerns there that I think are completely valid. We have a yeah. listener, uh, Dave Courtney, shout out Dave, uh, who actually feels very strongly about this because he does not subscribe to Netflix, and he's got some compelling thoughts regarding the sort of uh, exclusivity and elitism that Netflix purports. I also, I, I apologize for cutting you off. No, you're I'll, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll run down my Rolodex of pros and cons uh, in brief in a moment, but I want you to be able to finish your thought. No, all I was saying is like, I do think that's a legitimate conversation, but in sure. terms of just the pragmatism and the, I'm trying to think of a decent analogy, but one's not coming to me in the moment. But yeah, I mean, if a company is making a feature film and, I, you know, is, is Spielberg any more right than Netflix to him is wrong? You know, like- mm-hmm. You're just kind of trying to twist the twist the rule such that it it creates this very specific omission with a, a great deal of intentionality that's like, okay. Right. And anyway, I you know, clearly yeah. I'm, I'm I'm not super versed on all of the, the levels of the argument, but ins and I, outs and ups and downs. Yeah. I just think technologically speaking, it's it's a, a ship that has sailed. Now, whether right. Netflix needs to be the only ship, sure, that's a reasonable conversation. Sure. And and you know what? I'll rattle off in brief because I wanted to bring this up, but uh, you know, we have we have other material to get to. Um I wanted to to just in brief sort of hit the highlights of the argument for listeners who may be interested in hearing about this but don't know obviously I can't do a comprehensive here's everything that everybody has to say about it, but here's some of the highlights. So um I'm gonna start with some of the problems with Netflix. I do think that Netflix is a Bit of a threat to the theatrical experience. I do think that um, Netflix has not been the first threat to that. Let's go back to the fact that Steven Spielberg, most of us, you and I particularly, did not probably fall in love with Spielberg's movies in the theater, but rather on VHS. Um, Some of them we did see in the theater, but I know for a lot of the early material, I was growing up and didn't go to the theater to see those movies. I saw them on VHS after the fact. So the the home viewing experience has been something that's been vibrant and around for like 70 years now at this point. And so there are, in other words, Netflix has not got a monopoly on that sort of threat to the theatrical experience. Also, I think pretty definitively that MoviePass, pour a cold one out for MoviePass, 
Um, movie, which it's actually still around, but MoviePass, I think, proved pretty conclusively that if you can provide an avenue through which people can cost-effectively go to the theaters, that they will. Right. They bled, right. They bled cash as a result and fell on the proverbial sword uh, as a result of it, but I don't think it's deniable anymore that if we can figure out the economics of it, people will go to the movies. They because, will. See, that's where, I uh, know we really don't need to talk about this much longer, but like I don't give a lot of water to a lot of water. I don't give a lot of <laughs> credence. I don't give a lot of. I don't find it Netflix encroaches on the movie going experience a compelling argument only because I think you just made that point. Like if if you, it's it's absurdly expensive to have yes yes and and a a full experience of going to the theater like it's stupid yes and they keep coming up with newer and higher price tags well like you just said i mean i know you had done movie pass before the a-list thing was even around and so like recognizing this subscription type of service in that setting has merit and they prove that absolutely however successful or not they ended up being and so yeah to me no Sorry to cut you off. Yeah. No, 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 you're fine. Uh, so so that's that. One thing that I will say, just, just so that it's not, like I'm 100% in the Netflix camp in this argument, Netflix does have a bad habit of this. They'll release material, but then they have a tendency to bury it. So if it's not streaming right away or if it's not getting sort of the pop that they think it could or should get, then they'll have a tendency to bury it in the algorithm. You search for that category, and it might not be the top thing that pops up. It's not, I mean, you can certainly search by alphabetical and certain uh, desktop platforms and everything, but Netflix does have some some legitimate issues with they will release content and put it out there, but then they'll bury it. You have to kind of know where to look to go and find it. Yeah, um, I think that's kind of just a user interface kind of yeah, thing, yeah. Right? yeah. Um, no, it absolutely is. But then here's the here's the other thing, and I'll tell you uh, to sort of wrap a bow on the conversation, what ultimately tipped me 100% into the Netflix camp. So there have been some conversations on the fact of like, yeah, that's great, but number one, Steven Spielberg has probably not had trouble getting a film distributed in decades. Like, right. he does not understand the struggles of burgeoning independent filmmakers to get funding for their film and to get it into the theater. So right. I think in that in that capacity, he's probably a bit out of touch with that struggle, with that dilemma, because immediately people like Ava DuVernay and everything else coming out like, hey, I, there are films on there that Netflix gave a platform to. They have a proven, proven track record for diversity and inclusion. I mean, almost to a fault, like the the sheer variety. We've, we've talked on this show before about like they're just sometimes seems like they're throwing everything at the wall like they're just literally trying to hit every single demographic but what that also means is that there's probably not a voice uh, that hasn't somehow found its way onto Netflix's platform. People of color, uh, women filmmakers, different cultural uh, voices and uh, cultural conditions. Like they, they, Netflix has a wide, diverse variety of content on their platforms. And what ultimately made the decision, if it's about like, oh, Oscars are about preserving the theatrical experience and preserving film, the one thing that finally sort of put the nail in the coffin where I was like, nope, I'm in team Netflix, was actually when I finally re- when it finally clicked to me, one Mr. Martin Scorsese. Because Martin Scorsese is from basically the same generation as Steven Spielberg. 
came up in almost the same way, is respected in some degrees on like an even higher level. I mean, Steven sure. Spielberg is way more popular, but in terms of Scorsese's cinematic pedigree, right. and I'm not going to go into the, the huge laundry list of all of the things that Martin Scorsese has done to preserve cinema and actually make sure that uh, certain films do not deteriorate, uh, film restoration, all of these kinds of things that Scorsese is putting his money where his mouth is in terms of authenticating and preserving uh, film for future generations and thanks to Netflix's big price tag Scorsese's next film The Irishman is gonna be on Netflix so right. when it finally clicked to me like oh man this guy who has every reason to sort of you know balk against all of these trends that he's experiencing and seeing he's signed up to to produce his next film there I'm like okay yep that that sold it for me I'm like okay I'm, I'm kind of in he's camp. just He's just seeing the writing on the wall, man. It says, "Now yeah. come home." <laughs> that was a great. That was a great segue <laughs> to end our wonderful little edition this time of what you watching. What you reading? What are you listening to? What, what are you debating on social media? <laughs> So, yes, thank you, listeners, for indulging me on that. I know that was a bit of a cheat, not a recommendation, but uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I don't see it so much as Team Take Netflix a side. Team, yeah, it's not so much Team Netflix versus Team Spielberg as, to me, as it is Team Spielberg versus Team Scorsese, even though Scorsese has Whoa. not spoken out publicly against Spielberg or Spielberg's efforts. Um, but I just I see what he's doing, and it just it impresses me. But we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about the next installment of Hashtag Flannel Graph Flanagan, but before we get to that, or you could consider this kind of a prelude to it, we need to tag back in on Hashtag TV Guideposts, and we need to talk about the briefest episode of The Haunting of Hill House, Episode 8, Witness Marks. Nathan, are you ready? You ready to talk about Witness Marks? I'm ready. I was, I was born ready to talk That's about Witness Marks. That's a that's a um, precursor. That's a long time for to wait to get to talk about hey, this show. You know, sometimes just good things take time, right? <laughs> um, so uh, on my likes dislikes, um, I'll just start us off here. So the fertility doctor of Stephen and I can't remember his wife's name. I feel terrible. Lee, mm, Lee, Stephen and Lee's yeah. fertility doctor. Mm -hmm. That actor is a friend of my brother's and his wife. Oh, for real? Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, I they, didn't know they, that. That's they, great. They go, they go to church together in Georgia. That's um, awesome. I did not know that. That's very cool. Very, very cool. And it's funny because my brother does not like scary material. And I was encouraging him to watch this show because I was like, I think you might be able to handle it. And he was like, no, I watched the one scene that she's in and I couldn't handle anything else. I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> All right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. The person six, standing outside the shady window was just too much. Yeah. That was creepy. <laughs> so six degrees there. Nice. Um, I love Hugh's story to Steven in the car, the fight with love. Oh um, my gosh, that was great! Yeah, I love. We fought I, I with think, love. Mm. I, I think that maybe what I would like my marriage mantra to be is that we weren't perfect, but we were always kind. Mm. Um, this mm -hmm. is a really, really, really lovely sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can keep going. Man, hell hath no fury like a surely scorned. Goodness oh my gracious. gosh, she. <laughs> yeah, so that she is. A couple, couple of chilling uh, moments, obviously, but one in particular is where 
her husband says, hey, can we talk when I get back? And she says, and, and how she responds to him is, how? You'll be back at the hotel. And yeah. it's like, oh my yeah. gosh, she is cold-blooded. But once oh, more, man. speaking of Netflix, oh, little man's dressed like uh, Ninja Suit Daredevil. Love it. Yeah, it's so great. That's so great. Hey, did you, uh, ca- did you catch, this is an echo of Nell's episode nope i get to say it i get what? to say it because what? i definitely caught this time that when steven told mrs dudley that he found something in the game room she said the what room and yeah. i definitely caught it this time you caught that's it because exactly i told right. you to pay attention to it Yay. that's right it's your okay I'll, I'll we'll finish some of the technical stuff and i'll get to some questions um okay. our family is like an unfinished meal to that house that's a rough line yeah um Man, dude, you talked last week about the framing of Hugh against the staircase, and I mentioned in episode one the framing of some of the shots with Little Nell. Man, I love the shot of adult Luke outside the house with the gas cans and the red lights lighting up the interior of the hill house. Oh, oh my boy. gosh. Yes, yes. That's absolutely. great. That is a yeah. great shot. Mm-hmm. Um, what other sort of likes, dislikes do you have? So, uh, obviously, well, most of the things in this episode revolve around uh, frights, revolve okay. around some scares. But like I mentioned, you know, the the what room. I mean, obviously, I don't know if it would classify as a like-dislike, but Stephen's revelation, uh, when you finally find out oh. why his marriage is falling apart, that's pretty That's rough. heartbreaking. That's, that's yeah. pretty bad. And you lose, in my opinion, at least I did, you lose a good bit of sort of, emotional support for the character when you find out that he did that. It's like, uh, yeah, I've kind of, uh, not that you've been like team Steven all the way. Cause he's definitely a complex character, but it's like knowing that he had done that straight out of college and then still entered into his relationship with his wife, knowing she wanted kids and going, uh, you know, that long, the revelation for those of you who haven't seen it, which why haven't you seen it? But, um, he, uh, <laughs> he reveals that he, was so upset by what had happened to his own family that he never wanted children. So he had a vasectomy like straight out of college and then still married this woman. Who See, he that's, knew wanted that's kids. interesting. Um, I think it gave me the empathy I needed for that character because I really, think oh, wow. well, cause I just think that's hear me. I understand what you're saying and I don't like, I don't like on paper disagree with you, but I think if anything, Stephen more than Shirley is the most in denial about all they've gone through. And I think yeah, yeah. that that act is such a step of such a tragic step of just denial. And just like yeah. this guy, this guy is so deluded in, in how he comprehends what they've been through and come on, goodness gracious, that, that his monologue, like, I don't remember exactly the way he phrases it, but something like we're rotten. Like to, oh, yes. to, to yeah. have gotten to that level of belief in oneself. I mean, that's the most self-loathing character in that show. Yeah, he, he probably is. And it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty upsetting. Obviously I love, this is not quite a fright, but I love the story where Hugh is telling Steven about the clock repairman. Yeah, and the yeah. and then the he's tell- yeah. oh yeah, and then he's t- so that's where the witness marks comes from. But then it's like he's telling him already about the clock repairman. But then he's like, "I never built you a treehouse." It's like, "Oh my gosh, that's crazy!" So yes, I love I I love that, and I don't know if you. I, so here's a question that I have for you. So, do you interpret it that the treehouse is actually the red room? Yes. 
Okay. I, I mean, I buy it. I buy but it. See, I but see, it. okay. But see, you, okay. Well, let's open that door <laughs> if we can. Um, <laughs> we don't have a key. Right. Well, let's kick it in or something. Um, <laughs> so we'll get to scares, but I thought about this last week. And if you listen to last week's conversation on Hill House, you'll hear me brush up against it. And I was like, no, it might be more because we're, we're really in the thick now. I and mean, this is episode eight of 10. Yes. So like, yeah. you know, the, the, the revelations about the nature of the house, the, at this point forward, it's more about how and will this family stay in alive mainly. Right. And, right. you know, there's not a whole lot of like revelations per se. Um, sure. There are more explicit lines to draw, but a lot of the things are there, even if blurry. And so what occurred to me last week that I didn't ask was, you know, Hugh in the car says, um, our family's like an unfinished meal to that house. So it's clear the 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 tendrils of the house are well i say it's clear so, so sort of a question here are is the house affecting them beyond the premises of the house so that's a question is is the house so for instance in this episode we have theo and shirley in the funeral home and the walls get banged on you have last episode the the specter that's that's ravaged the forever home uh, model so, so that's just a simple question. It maybe I'm overcomplicating it. Are those manifestations of the house? Hmm. That is a great question. I would incline I would incline myself to say yes that they're manifestations of the residue that has come from them living in this house. Because if you compare it to the Dudleys, who you know stayed and worked in the house but live off the premises, then there could be said that these people like like Hugh says they're an unfinished meal so it would it would <laughs> using that analogy perhaps a bit in a, of a silly way um there's still some seasoning sort of in their dna that they've carried with them as they left the house and so i would believe that the things they are experiencing which the younger generation Luke and Nell experience at a much more intense degree than the older generation of Stephen and Shirley. Um, and then Theo, because of her sort of clairvoyance, uh, is experiencing, you know, quite a bit of that. But I feel like, yes, they're, they are the, the banging on the walls, all of the things that they kind of experience uh, tangentially to the house is, in fact, because of the house that it's a, a, a if you will a residue or a remnant of something that has affected them and is impacting their perception and well, is haunting I, them still. Yeah, and I guess that's what I'm. And ultimately, I don't know that I don't I don't know that there's a, a right or wrong answer per se. I guess I was just trying to figure out okay, what are the rules we're operating by here, or yeah. do there need to be them? And so, I, you know, the way I was kind of interpreting some of it was less. This is residual effect on the persons of the crane adults and more the house itself making apparitions to them out in the real because so, so, so kind of in tandem to that question, excuse me, or kind of buried underneath what are or aren't the rules um, is, is the red room. So, you know, it's fairly clear at this point, I think, um, and maybe it becomes more clear. We both watched it. And so some of my memories hazy over just how explicit some of this gets from here. But um, each of the kids 
have their own version of what the red room is. You know, yes. Luke's Luke's is the treehouse. <clears throat> Stevens is the game room. Um, Theo's is the dance studio. Shirley's is like an art room. I can't remember mm-hmm. what Shirley's and Nell's are, but mm. so I said, what I wrote down is, is the red room, the house's way of preying on the kids, you know, mm. like, like it has wooed them to this place, given them a room of their imagining and, and, and greatest sort of comfort and kind of, you know, nursing on them in whatever way it does. And yeah. so in tandem to that, and this is one of my only, if I had any sort of quibbles in trying to suss out what's going on in this show, this might be one of them. But I really just, I love the show so much, I kind of don't care. Ultimately, it just makes me wonder what kind of conversations happen to result in what we get. So where okay. I'm going with this is like, remember how, this is super random. Do you remember our Sixth Sense conversation and how you offered that some people critique the Sixth Sense because you know, kind of the logistics of it fall apart. And I made fun of this notion of like, do you really need to see the entire scene of ghost Cole or ghost Malcolm showing up? Yes. Right. I still, I still hold that for six cents. However, in a piece like Hill house, and this is why I would just be curious. And I don't know that it exists in terms of interviews, what the rules they established in house for the red room are, because like we see Shirley, and now earlier in the season outside it and later learn Theo is inside dancing. Yes. Yes. And so this begets a sequence of logistical questions, right? Like, hmm. okay, how did Nell get in there? I mean, how did Theo get in there? If not by that door. And I suppose if we went and look back, maybe there's another door that we see in the scene with her. I just can't remember. But so all I'm trying to say is all of these kids see different room, see different, uh, topography, see different environment when they're in that room, but clearly they don't all go to that room to get into their place. You know what I'm yes, saying? Yes, right. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, I don't know. I'm just trying to, like, discern exactly what we're dealing yeah. with. Okay, so I, um, uh, I understand the logistical quandary that you're that you're needing to unpack. The way I would resolve it is the show establishes that the house itself plays around with spatial reality. Um, we see it in Bent Neck Lady when Nell th- thinks she visualizes her mother simply putting a necklace on, and then suddenly she looks around and realizes her mother has actually put a noose on her neck and she's standing on the other side of the rail. So think about that. How did she climb over the rail without realizing it? How sure, is she now sure. suddenly on the other sure. end of it? So they do establish, albeit they don't explicitly unpack, but they do establish that the house has a capacity to distort certain spatial realities and make a, a, an individual feel like they are in a different place than they actually are. Sure. Um, and because of that establishment, no, I, I can, just always yeah. presumed, yeah, that it's like they thought they were going into. That's why they so matter of factly said, "Oh, it's the toy room. Right, oh, it's the right, game right, room. Right, right. It's like because they went to a place that they thought they were just. Exp- this is my presumption. They thought they're just exploring the house and found fi- and found this room, right. and they don't realize. Oh no, we've actually stepped inside of the red room. So in a case like what you mentioned with Theo, where. It sounds from the outside like, well, you know, we see Shirley and Nell kind of trying to break into the red room, not realizing that Theo is trapped inside of it. 
well, I should say, say trapped, obviously, right, got right, out right. of it. But when Theo entered that room, it probably appeared very different to her. It probably just appeared like another room, perhaps even in another hall. I mean, we saw, not only just in the spatial elements of it, we saw in Two Storms how he's uh, Hugh is following Liv, yeah, who bounces about, yeah, all over the up. place. Yeah. And there's that moment where she appears to be standing in front of a, a window that shatters. He looks away, looks right back, and the window's back intact. So it, sure. I think I would maybe maybe dismiss, but I would explain that there's those logistical elements could be explained by the precedent they've set that the house does mess with perceptions of reality and makes you makes the individuals feel like they are doing or seeing or are spatially in places that's not accurate to where they actually are or what they're actually doing. No, and I can get behind that, and I'm looking forward to rewatching nine and 10 to see some of the language they apply, because I feel like maybe I'm misremembering, but I want to say late in the series, they establish, and this is manifest by even just the color of the door. They, they kind of, and again, maybe you remember some of this and can help me here, but um, like the, the, the physical red room that they cannot get into is almost like the literal heart of the house. You know, and so yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, and so you know, it's it's going to work to protect itself while it does what it can to chew its food, more or less. Sure. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Understood. Understood. Well, um, I d- we we we've spent a little bit of time here. I don't yeah, want to spend yeah, yeah. too much longer, but we have to talk about some scares because in this episode is. I'll let you describe it if you want to, uh, if you want to talk about it, but that scare, and you know exactly what I mean when we have even referenced when we were talking about, I think, episode one or two. Yeah. Uh, we were talking about, like, that scare. Like, it is the big, one of the big scares of the show, um, and it is just next level. It is absolutely next level in terms of its capacity to startle and frighten and upset you, and it's in this episode, and it's brilliant. And Yeah. Um, you I mean, want to tell them what I'm talking about? Uh, if you've watched this episode at all, um, you know exactly where we're at, and that's in the car with Shirley yep. and Theo, and they get into an argument. And um, during some of my reading I've done, it's really great. Flanagan, in an interview, said that he told – her first name is Victoria, I believe, the actor who plays Nell. Theo and Shirley had like pages of dialogue left. But wow. he had he had told the actor playing Nell, said, Don't come on your cue in the script. Come before to get the mo- to elicit the most natural response. Oh my from, gosh. From Nell from uh, Theo and Shirley. And, and from the gracious. audience, good luck. Yeah, Lord. yeah, yeah. If you've never seen that scene, I, I hate that you're listening to this conversation if you have not, because yes. we just spoiled it for you. But uh, those of you who have seen that scene without knowing about it beforehand know you. we all joined Poop Club together uh, oh my gosh. Yes. during that scene. My goodness. And in fact, when I was re-watching it, I was like, knowing it was coming, I was like stealing myself. Like, okay, here it goes. <laughs> 
I guess. Here it yeah, goes. yeah, oh, yeah. What? Not yet. Okay, okay. Oh God, there it is. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's brilliant. Because what's brilliant about its construction is that it comes at a moment where emotions are already heightened, but in a different intention. Yeah. It comes like, it's not like one of the, you know, jump scares usually have this big framing where it's like quiet and your anticipation and all this other sort of stuff. They're at the point that it comes, Shirley and Theo are screaming at each other. Well, not screaming, but they're like yelling at each other. Well, and also you have no reason to think we're in a scare moment. That's, that's right. why it's so great, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're arguing about their relationships and the complications of, of what has happened through the course of the show, and they're yelling at each other, and they're arguing, and it's tense, and then all of a sudden, right there, Nell's face. She just face, leaps, leaps oh out, and shrieks gosh. like a banshee. Oh, my gosh, it's well, so unnerving. Now, that one's great, and we get further context to it in 9, maybe 10, or maybe 9, maybe 10, but... My goodness, uh, young Steve walking in to live, talking to the Not Twins, saying, of course, oh. you're safe with me. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, once that scene gets fully revealed, oh my gosh, it might it might be Nine that's Liv's story. I, I don't remember the sequence exactly. but I, th- I think I think it is Nine, because Ten yeah. is like the culmination of everything. Right, I think right. Nine is where we see what really happened to Liv and everything like that. Um, oh my that gosh. Scene, that scene is great. Um, the other major scare that I had, uh, here is just, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a jump moment at the final beat of the episode, but just, you know, the specter appearing behind Luke and then grabbing him, like just as the, just before the, oh, yeah, the yeah, episode yeah. Roll, like, oh, cause you already know they've set up and established that Luke is in mortal peril because the house is going to try to protect itself against Luke's intentions. And it also, is you know wanting to finish its meal, so to speak. So it's yeah, it's pretty it's pretty gripping because at that point, for reasons we've already unpacked in previous episodes, you care deeply about Luke, and yeah. you do not want anything bad to happen to Luke. And uh, yeah, the fact that not only is something bad possible, it is probable. That's a, that's a very unnerving. Well, moment. and I think that's a really disheartening scene because you're kind of like, all right, man, showdown time. And then he he lays all that gasoline and tries to light it, and man, it just snuffs right out. Oh, that's crazy! That's so crazy. I went down a rabbit hole in my mind of like thinking, wait, did the is so did it, did the house like just dry up all the gasoline? Is he not really holding a lighter? Like, what's what's going on? Like, oh man, it's yeah, it's nuts. It's absolutely crazy. Well, did you have did you have anything else on this uh, on this particular episode? It is it is brief, uh, but it is potent, particularly in the scare factor was there anything more to say no i'm good all right so uh that was episode eight of the haunting of hill house called witness marks tune in next week for the uh final installment of our little sub series of hashtag tv guideposts where we'll be discussing episode nine uh leading up right up to a full episode's worth Dude, conversation on the haunting exciting. of hill house oh i'm so excited that is um, exciting but thankfully, we don't have to leave the work of Mike Flanagan, who is a director that I really respect and admire and love his stuff, and I'm really excited that we're talking about him, uh, because we're now diving into 2016's film, one of three films, by the way, that Mike Flanagan directed and released in 2016. All three of them really great, and uh, this we are talking specifically about the one released by Netflix called Before I Wake. Now, you had never seen this film, 
right? I, I had never seen this film. All right. Um, there's something that I tried to do a bit of research about and could not find a definitive answer to. So what I was able to uncover is that the film was made, funded by Relativity Media, and was slated for theatrical distribution. It was supposed to have a normal theatrical run, but Relativity Media went bankrupt somewhere in the process, and Netflix swooped in and acquired the film. Now, I don't know where in the production run it acquired the film because Hush, which was released the same year, Netflix has exclusive distribution rights to Hush, but Hush is not considered a Netflix original film. And Before I Wake is considered a Netflix original film. So I don't know where in the production of things they swooped in and said, okay, well, we'll, we'll catch this and we'll uh, help complete production or something. I don't know what it is, but I, uh, paying attention, the credits right up top say a Netflix original film, which Hush, when you watch it uh, next week, spoiler alert, everybody, but when you watch Hush next week, you'll see it does not have that designation. Hush was completed and then acquired for distribution by Netflix, but this one w appears to at least have partially been uh, funding the production. Netflix seems to have been funding the production. But as I mentioned, it's one of three films that Mike Flanagan made in 2016, the other two being, of course, Hush, which is also on Netflix, and the other one, uh, the prequel to the film Ouija, uh, Ouija Origin of Evil, which features, the actress's name uh, is not in front of me, but it features the younger version of Shirley in Ouija Origin of Evil, and features, we know how uh, he likes to use uh, the same players, uh, Henry Thomas is in... Ouija Origin of Evil as well in a in a somewhat smaller role. What um, is that movie a prequel to? Ouija. <laughs> what? I don't I don't get why that's course. funny. <laughs> I don't get why that's funny. <laughs> it just it just <laughs> It just felt like a stupid question after you answered it. Like, oh, <laughs> yeah, of course it is. Like, it's, a, it's a prequel to the film. Like, that's funny. The, the film is titled uh, Ouija, Origin of Evil, the first part. Uh, other, uh, also, like, Annabelle, Creation. And it's like, oh, well, right. what's, this a, what's yeah. this a prequel to? Uh, Ouija. Right, right. Well, and like in oh. my head, in my head, I heard like wedgie, and it was just, Ouija's a funny word, you know. And so <laughs> you say Ouija, Origin of Evil, you're talking about all the Flanagan players. I'm like, huh. That's, you said that what's was a prequel that, to that's a thing. What's, what's the actual movie? You're like Ouija, like oh. it's actually a, it's actually a prequel to uh, Fried yeah. Green Tomatoes. I know that, that it's makes... uh, that's it's it's a weird pivot away. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. It's, but yes. it's pretty wild these days what they do with these franchises. <laughs> um, all uh, right, so um, so, yeah. so before I sleep, Reed, we got to talk about before I wake. Um, <laughs> now, is this was this your second time watching this? This is my second time seeing it. Yeah, loved it even more this time. Keep tipping my hand to the end of the episode, but yes. well, this is my this is my first time. Um, All right then, it was pretty fun. You know, there's the Henry Thomas, there's Kate Siegel, Seagal, or Siegel, Siegel maybe Siegel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's people I knew were familiar players to the Flanagan repertory company. Well, then I had never, I didn't know a thing about before I wake. So then I turn it on and it's like Agent Reyes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it's Wilf from 1922. Oh, oh it's man. Lois Lane, Lane from Superman Returns. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's the little boy from Room. Everybody showed up to this party. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. But I will, yeah, say, I will say this. Thomas Jane's hair looks ridiculous. 
Oh my gosh, can we talk about Thomas Jane's hair? It's so we can weird. Do it. Like, let's do it. <laughs> like, it's so strange because, yeah, you see this picture of him with the, and I recognize they're just sort of making some physical signifiers that'll say like, oh yeah, this is different. Right. He he looks different. Time uh, has passed. You see this? You see this picture on the wall of him, like you know, clean cut, him with his wife and their son and everything, and then yeah, his hair is some weird like I mean it it's really strange cuz it's long but it's not like that I don't know it's that had to be a wig it, it's a little weird that had, that oh of course ridiculous. it was a wig but I mean just like oh my gosh yeah it looks it looks a little strange so you had to kind of acclimate to his vocal intonations in 1922 and now you're having to acclimate to his hair like Thomas Jane's a really skilled actor but the poor I had guy an has... easier time with his voice than I did with his hair <laughs> I believe it I believe it now we uh, should mention yeah. that you know, Thomas Jane, and I guess we should give Carla Gugino, um, I hope we're saying her last name right. Um, I hope so, too. The, um, I'm sorry if we're not, Carla, because I know you listen to the show. Um, please <laughs> leave a review. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Thomas Jane, Thomas and Carla are like the king and queen. They are like the nexus points. They are, they are. Maturin and one of the others that serve the beam, right? Like they are, oh, they yes. uphold the fear of God in 2019 because they are part of Netflix and Chills. They bridge Netflix and Chills. They bridge 19. They bridge Flannel Graph Flanagan. All things serve the beam. Indeed. So, indeed. You know, like they're going to frolic through the field of roses to the dark tower and take down the crimson king by erasing his sorry ass with a pencil <laughs> spoiler alert wow well. <laughs> wow spoiler alert to the seven volume epic <laughs> they don't believe me because that's a really stupid way that you would end that kind of thing <laughs> wow um yeah so his hair looks ridiculous um his hair but, does look ridiculous but can we talk about too how like so I was texting Reed during this movie, I had never seen it and and this is just what I do. I'm like I'm gonna text Reed like he's sitting right next to me. Well, my auto <laughs> my autocorrect somehow referred to Thomas Jane as Thad Jane T H A D. So <laughs> forgotten this. <laughs> so. The rest of my movie watching, I just kept referring to Thad Jane, and it's like his body double because look at his hair; he looks ridiculous. And it's like it's Tom when Thomas <laughs> when he's just like, you know what? I I don't I don't want to go to work today. He sends in Thad. You know they got they got Thomas to do those old pictures with the family with Kate Bosworth and the kid, but Thad is the one who showed up on set. But he's like, I'm done. I'm yeah. done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, go Thad on, Thad Jane, go on, Thad. <laughs> So, oh yeah. my gosh, we that was hysterical. Yeah, talking about Thad Jane. When we were texting, I think we were even going down a rabbit hole of all these like you know actors who look very strange in other movies, and they have their twin counterparts just show up, and yeah. I forget what other monikers we had come up with, but that was pretty funny. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So, what are some likes dislikes you have, Reed? So I have a couple. Um, so I think Jen- Jacob Tremblay is just adorable. I mean, he was adorable in in Room. Uh, have you seen Wonder? The no, no. Uh-uh. Wonder is fantastic. You yeah. should you should definitely my see kids, Wonder. My kids saw it and loved it, and it looked. It looked uh, yeah, I mean, I got teary from the trailers. I don't know if I'll survive. Uh, you won't survive. It's okay. yes, it's very very teary, and it's beautiful and wonderful. And yes, I would highly recommend everybody seeing Wonder. Um, but yeah, so Jacob Tremblay is just a, a really exceptional young actor. Um, he's adorable in this. 
uh, speaking of young actors, so this time around, my again, second time seeing it, uh, knowing a bit more of the context of kind of what was being talked about, the first time that Mark and Jesse see Sean, their son who had who had passed away, um, it it hit me pretty hard. Like their their reactions to seeing him in the physical space and their trepidatious approach and making contact with him again. Because uh, you know we we should do this earlier. We should make it part of our normal formatting. We sometimes stumble into it, but here's the premise of Before I Wake. In brief, um, a young a relatively young couple suffered a tragic loss of their son and then discovered shortly on the heels of that that they were unable to have any more children, so they looked into adoption. They have adopted a young boy, and you learn, the the film teases this out a bit, but um, you learn relatively quickly in the narrative that the boy they have adopted has the power somehow to manifest his dreams in the physical world. So what he sees and thinks about as he's dreaming becomes physical presence in the world to those who are awake in the vicinity. And uh, so he has seen a picture of their child, their deceased child, and so he manifests this child. And the first time they see uh, their young son again, like, it really hit me pretty hard emotionally. The first time around, I wasn't aware enough of what was happening in the story to for it to really affect me. It was more of a curiosity. But this time around, knowing it, their reactions really uh, really hit me sort of hard, uh, really felt for them in, in those moments. I also love, just in general, the dream sequences as a whole. They're bright and they're colorful. Obviously not the nightmares, but the dream sequences themselves are just lovely. Um, I think they're very... They they set a visual tone for the film that I find very engaging and impressive, and they draw me in every single time. I really, uh, really, really love that. Uh, I have just two more comments, but uh, what what do you have? Do you have anything before I give my, my last two comments? You know I do. Um, I know you do. I don't remember exactly sequentially where this falls, but it is a pretty heartbreaking scene when the parents see Sean in a subsequent dream but then he disappears and Cody comes down and just says, I'm sorry. Oh yes. That's really, yeah. Really, yeah. Heart, really heartbreaking. Um, in general, something that really shone out to me in this film as a microcosm of some of the things that Hill house would ultimately unpack in a lot broader form is, uh, the scene with the parents and Sean, perhaps the first time I can't remember exactly at this point, but it just it just highlighted to me what a sensitive filmmaker Flanagan is. Like, there's a it lot. Really yeah. um, the word I wrote is, and I don't know if I'm even pronouncing it right, but elegiac, elegiac, mm. ele, you know mm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like an elegy. Elegiac, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, just this real kind of, it's like this thin membrane of of heartbreak, but beauty. Like, it's it's yeah. really. Oh, yeah. It's got a lot of soul and spirit and, and heft to the proceedings and, and not even just the story, which ultimately does reveal itself to have a remarkable amount of depth to it. But even just the filmmaking style is what I'm talking about. Sure. Just just the scoring and the direct, the directorial choices. So that was really good. Although (laughs) maybe I'm, um, inadvertently, uh, countering myself here, but so part of this premise is that Reed, uh, was talking about in terms of when, Cody, their adopted son, falls asleep. These visions occur. Well, 
one of these recurring visions is what comes to be referred to as the canker man. Um, and the canker man is friggin' friggin' scary, scary. Oh, it's terrifying. Yeah. Um, as, as a funny little side note. So I watched this movie when my wife was out of town and I watched it down, I watched it downstairs and I ain't going to lie, bro. Like this movie (laughs) finished. I turned the lights off and I ran upstairs. I'm like, canker man, canker man ain't getting me. (laughs) No, no, sir. No, I understand. So what you, but what you, yeah, but what you learn is, uh, Cody can manifest this canker man as well. And when that happens, like really bad stuff goes down. Well, oh yeah. Bless his heart. The character actively tries to keep himself awake, uh, does not embrace sleep at night, you know, like takes meds and caffeine and all that sort of stuff to try to keep himself awake. So he's constantly in danger of falling asleep. Well, where I'm going with this is there's this scene that I'm fine with, but ultimately kind of was a bit convenient uh, for the proceedings when Cody's at school and he's eight years old. Okay. And he's with the teacher, like after school or during PE or something. And he's been bullied by this other kid. Well, right. the teacher is like, "Hey, I have to step out for a minute." Like that's how that's what she says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 she does. Yeah. Like the level of gravity is not that high on why she's departing. Like, is she sure. going to yes. take a phone call from her lover? Is she going to the bathroom? Um, does she need to go get a sandwich? Whatever. It just says she says to this eight year old, "I have to step out for a minute." Why don't you put your head down and rest? And then leaves right, this right. room with no lights on with this kid by himself. What teacher does that? No teacher yeah. does that. Like, <laughs> she should have been eaten by the canker man. Come on. Oh, no, I understand. I understand. You need, it's, it's funny. It is a, a sort of a matter of convenience because you need a scenario right. in which he's going to be in this proximity of this bully and, you know, is going to doze off and, but also be somewhat limited in the scope of who will and will not see what this right, man right, does. Right, and so, right. Yeah, no, I, I understand. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a convenience. You mentioned the sensitivity of Flanagan as a filmmaker. I would also add to it the sort of the thematic and emotional complexity of the, the ways and the beats within his films and, and how he chooses to resolve certain things. So the ending, uh, I mean, yes, listeners uh, about to spoil some stuff about the ending. So two things about the ending. First, the whole once upon a time story is just absolute. It's very complicated. I'm sure we'll get into this in theme. It's very complicated in its ramifications but I found it beautiful. I thought the Once Upon a Time story at the end where they're imagining the things that, the possibilities with these people who are missing and have gone away. Well, come on. you got to fill some gaps there. Like, you, what's Oh, the, sorry. So, right? yes. So what happens is this canker man, when he manifests, um, then he has the power and tendency to grasp people in his clutches and basically absorb them. And when he does that, he like they are gone. They are essentially dead to the world. They are sort of technically missing absentee, but they are gone. They are done. And so in the ending, an element to the ending is she is comforting and telling him a bedtime story, and she creates these potential alternate versions because he says, uh, she says to him, the people who are gone aren't really, you know, they live on in our hearts and in our minds. And so she says, and in, you know, she says in this story, the bully wakes up 
in his bed because the bully gets sort of consumed by the canker man in that convenient scene that we were just uh, mentioning. And she says the bully wakes up in his bed and what was making him sad no longer makes him sad. Um, and then she talks about the lady that the canker man ate in the previous home where he was staying at. She gets to return to her husband and old long-haired daddy Tad Jane, um, he actually gets to be back with their deceased son in this version of things. So there's a lot of complications to that ending point for a story um, that I'm sure we could, you know, we can get into. We can maybe get into it now or we can get into it later. But regardless of that, I found the idea quite beautiful and and, well, and lovely. Yes, and I don't disagree with you. Uh, one more gap to fill real quick, though, is what you end up learning is Canker Man is, in fact, a an appropriation oh, yes. of this yes. young man's memory of his mother who died of cancer. So he has, yes, in his memory, fabricated this Canker Man manifestation that uh, is really just how he was so young, how he recalls visualizing and and how his memory recreates his mother. But it is now this Canker Man. So that that's the major twist of the story. That then, so it has this, and I just looked it up, it's elegiac, by the way, elegiac. Oh. Um, has this real kind of elegiac kind of story pivot once you learn. And in fact, what I wrote down is, whoa, this got deep. Um, <laughs> because, <laughs> just because much of the movie is this real heartfelt kind of horror fairy tale. That's really a good way to put it, kind of gothic kind of fairy tale. And then it puts this major twist on it that, oh, by the way, this thing that's been manifesting that he's afraid of that he knows he's in somehow control of is actually just this perverse manifestation of his mother and so so yes i'm with you it has a really nice yeah kind of coda aspect to it um <laughs> i said but canker man did still eat that so we do you know we gotta, <laughs> we gotta live with that um yes. so yeah I before mean, we you, move on from yeah. that i just want to i just want to mention too so it, it's my last in my sort of likes dislikes but I love the moment when you think after that harrowing scene, and we'll get to scares in a moment, after the harrowing sequence where she's moving or making her way through the children's home to find Cody again, but then the canker man comes at her again, and when he comes at her, she stops him with that butterfly plush, and then she she hugs him, which is, is frightening because we've seen him absorb people that hug him. Um, you mentioned that it is a manifestation of his mother, which is true. That's where he gets it from. But then when she hugs Cankerman and he dissolves and becomes Cody. Yes, yes, and, yes. And oh my gosh. You know, so it's like, yes, it's a manifestation of his mother, but it's also a manifestation of himself. Yes. Of a, of a sort of a protection of himself. Yes. And uh, yeah, it's the complicated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the imagery is manifestation of his mother, but he is the one doing the kind of astral projection. And yes. that's And that's kind of what you learn she discovers is he he effectively has this like superpower kind of idea um is is yes this kind of astral projection thing in terms of scares because there are definitively a handful of them you you already referenced the butterflies but even in their initial and uh maybe they're present as butterflies and then turn to moth is that right um uh yes i think so <laughs> there's yeah. this disgusting moment where i think it's thad gets bit by a moth and oh no, that's like, her. That's oh, her. her. She gets she gets bit by it. Yeah. But I was like, WTF? Who wants the proportional strength <laughs> and speed of a moth, man? You know, <laughs> not me. That would suck. Nope. You'd be like, uh, what's the character's name on the tick? His sidekick. 
Oh, I don't remember. Oh, that gummit. Someone's going to get mad at me right now for hearing this. I got to look it up. I got to do it. <laughs> Tell me one of your scares, Reed. Um, I'll I'll mention uh that like obviously every time the Cankerman appears, he is completely creepy looking when he's crawling out of that box when he's you know sort of moving maneuvering through the shadows uh the cankerman is is terribly terribly creepy uh really all of my scares involve the cankerman him rising out of the the present before he consumes oh bad, yeah uh, uh where, he con- <laughs> where he consumes the the bully i uh, love yeah i love it Thomas's twin Thad has joined the party. <laughs> um, the character from the Tick is called Arthur, but yes, he's dressed like a moth. Um, but no, oh. I'm with you. Um, the Canker Man, when he eats Tate, when nasty ghost Tate shows up in the bed or under the bed oh, or wherever he is, that's disgusting. That's so unnerving. Oh, that's um, so unnerving. I mean, Sean in the tub at the end is pretty nasty. That's pretty jacked up. That's oh, that's awful. And then what about? The sort of uh, distorted versions of them, of the three of them, in their yes. little like oh, yeah. they're like their eyes are these hollowed out sockets, and it's just oh yeah, it's it's well. What's it's funny ter- is what I wrote down is it says really effed up sequence with fake mom, fake Sean, fake Thad, and I was like, what is that talking about? And then you just described it, made me remember the visual, yes. and now I'm grossed out. Thanks, Reed. Oh my god, yeah, you're welcome. Uh, and here's what's funny about this: so Mike Flanagan, I mean, we're obviously covering it on the show, but Mike Flanagan actively resisted. Uh, the designation of horror film to this film. He said it was more of a supernatural drama, that it was uh, almost more like a fable. He preferred even fable to horror film. And yes, I don't think he's off base there. I definitely think this is uh, the heartbeat of this film is more than just its frights. But man, its frights are terribly effective. They are really, really gruesome. Um, again, they all pretty much involve the manifestations of this canker man, uh, cancer man, because he, when he was such a little child, read cancer as canker. That's why that's why he pronounces it that way. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's whenever that being is on screen, it's harrowing and terrifying and awful. Well, and the first time you see it, it's in the shadows by the fireplace. Ooh, that is Ooh. that is creepy. Yes, yes, that's terribly creepy. Did you have any more? Uh, did you have any more scares to mention before we kind of dive into theme? Mm, nope, nope. Um, well, I don't. I don't know if you had anything specific uh, to unpack. I have. I have something kind of, kind of interesting. But I want to know if you if you had anything sort of burning or or uh, that you felt very passionate about to express for this film. Hmm. You know. I can get behind the idea of the fable and that makes me sad because I think the lessons at the heart of this movie are should be best practices and not just anecdotal, if that makes mm. any sense whatsoever. Yeah, un- so, unpack it a little bit. Um, what did you say? I said unpack that a little bit. Oh, unpack that a little bit. I thought you said I'm packing a little bit or... I don't. I don't know what I thought you said, but it wasn't. I just what told you, said. you I was packing. Yeah, I'm like, um, okay. I sort of random. Well, I like I'll to just, randomly insert. Things. I'll just be here talking <laughs> to the people while you pack your bags for whatever this trip is you're going on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Um, well, I think uh, what I wrote down 
and we can chase this as long as we want. But I wrote the only answer to heal our pain is embrace. Mm. And I think there's such a powerful... I understand the resistance of the horror nomenclature for this film, not because of the imagery, but because of the story being told. Like the imagery, yeah, it's it's pretty horrific. It's pretty scary. Sure. But the story yeah. being told is saying the only way to move forward is embraced by another, right? Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, and I don't even mean the literal act of hug. Oh, give somebody a hug. That's not what I'm saying. But like the the sense of care and home and welcome. And I think that's a really important lesson in these modern times where our impulse is more to finger wag and yeah. more to keep at arm's reach those who may be actively or inadvertently causing trouble in the world or in our world. You know what I yeah. mean? By yeah. our world, I mean our own individual kind of world. I don't mean like sure the sure. earth, the earth at large. And I just no, think, I now hear me. We've said this over and over on the show over the years. I'm not proposing recklessness. Clearly, Kate Bosworth's character knows exactly what she's doing. Like she, right, right. She is not haphazardly doing a thing. She's very cognizant of what she's trying to make happen here. But I just think there's something powerful. Well, there's clearly something powerful. But the takeaway is even more powerful: is that as we see the pain of others, it, it's not really our call to like name it. You know. Um, mm. think about like, uh, Gerald's game last week, you know, we sort of settled on this notion of like, in order to recognize the eclipse is but a passing thing, the person under its shadow kind of has to, it, the person under its shadow can't be just yanked from it. You know what I mean? Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, Cody in this film could not be just forcefully wrenched out of this condition he's suffering from. You know, it was yeah, only it was yeah. only the tenderness and the affection and the warm embrace that is able to finally reconcile him to this part of himself. Right, right. Well, and it's the it's the sympathy and the understanding. There's a tremendous amount. Obviously, she knows more than she shares with him in that moment. Then, then I mean, she gets him home first before she unpacks everything that she knows right. about what happened to his mother, about what's happening to him. So, you know, so she, so it's that that whole scene is very harrowing, and it's it's very brave on her part to venture in and to try to rescue him from the throes of of his own condition and from the people who don't understand his condition but still think they're doing something beneficial for him still right. think that they're you know that they're helping him and i do i i loved that moment and i'm i'm grasping what you're saying about she does not diffuse the sort of aggression of the canker man only to escape she diffuses the aggression of the canker man and then embraces him right right and and or, I think or is it, and I don't know, is it that in embracing him diffuses the canker man? You know what I mean? That's a, Yeah, that's a fair point, too. And it, she definitely, that's what causes him to, to dissolve into the image of Cody and causes him to ultimately evaporate 
completely from view. But you know what stops first is this this little plush uh, yeah, butterfly. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know. And and that's what stops the because in that moment it's a really frightening shot. But in that moment the Cankerman you know screams, he's across the hall, screams at her and comes charging towards her. And it's because she presents this <sighs> this this plush uh, butterfly, which was a, a an emblem from his childhood, from Cody's childhood, earlier childhood, and that's what sort of stops the the onslaught. Right. And. And it is. It, it's. I'm. I'm not going to be able to quote the line verbatim because I haven't thought about it in some in some years. But there's a quote I remember, uh, and I, I really shouldn't mention things that I have so little context to provide for. But I remember someone spoke about the nature of compassion. It's a quote that I heard somewhere where somebody said, "The nature of compassion is to see what makes your enemy cry." And it's it's one of those things where we have such a tendency to look at perceived threats, and I won't even I won't even say perceived. The canker man is dangerous. He's he's dangerous. The the these people are gone. The people right, that it consumed right. are gone. And at the end of the film, they're gone. The film leaves a definitive possibility that eventually as Cody's gift, as they call it, matures they might be able to come back as his gift matures, but it really doesn't pivot very hard in that direction. It leaves you with the presumption of that they're they're gone. They're going to be gone. But I do think it's significant. Uh, I, well, I'll get to that part in a second. Um, so when we're thinking about this notion of compassion and embrace, we don't like to see the fact that our enemies are hurting about things that are unrelated to the fight we're in with them. We we want to see sort of our opponents go down. I think that's fair, that if we are in embattled against a person or an idea or a thing, we want to see them go down. But, you know, we've had many conversations about empathy on this show, and I think it is imperative that that we do embrace the possibility that even if they are making hurtful and painful choices, that we don't... We won't stop the cycle of those painful choices by more painful choices. Right. There will have to be a diffusion that involves compassionate embrace of something substantial. Like when she embraces this deformed, skeletal monster that she, by the way, saw attack them previously. I don't think she was awake at the point that it consumed uh, Mark, her husband. But she she has seen the threat that it poses, and so she embraces it still, not because of it, but because of what she knows is at the heart of it. Right. And I think that's something that's significant for us in dealing with loving our enemies and conversations about empathy for people that have hurt us or have done us wrong, that it's like, yeah, we, we may on the surface— uh, this probably is a really deep thought that I'm being a bit too uh, cavalier and brief with, but on the surface it may appear like we're being asked to embrace the monster and embrace the threat. But really what we might be striving for is bracing, is embracing what we know or what we believe to be beneath that, which may simply be, depending on the context, another deeply wounded, deeply hurting 
human being. Sure. That 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 we we don't necessarily want to vindicate and justify the pain that they have caused. But I don't know. I think there's I think there's a way in which um just as we've talked about on the show before, there's a way in which uh justice and mercy can both be satisfied without sacrificing one and the other and maybe we'll never get there unless we're willing to embrace some painful and threatening and scary things. And like you said, don't live reckless, but it's in it's in the root of the title, the premise that these things manifest when he's asleep. These things are subconscious, they're base. These things that 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 manifest themselves are the result of a subconscious mind, of something subterranean. There's an old Bob Dylan song from his Christian phase where he says, uh, it's an entire song called When You Gonna Wake Up, and one of the lines is, you've got big dreams, baby, but in order to dream, you have to still be asleep. Wow. And it it is this notion of like, yeah, that that's... There, there is a, a power to recognizing, and this is what I was, what I started to say a, a mere couple of minutes ago, and stopped myself. I think it is significant that the final image we see of him making a manifestation, he's awake. Cody's awake hmm. when he hmm. when he produces that final butterfly. He hasn't fallen asleep. I think his eyes are closed at that moment, but it's a bit of a stretch to think that his hand would still be lifted up and him be asleep. Right. Like, I, th- I think he has manifested it from his understanding of self and from, a- as a direct result of the compassion that he's been shown by his mom. And I, th- I d- oh, good Lord, I just love the, I love their whole exchange. He says, you know, is this a happy story? It feels like it can't be. And she says, I believe it is. You know, there's so much to that. There's no easy right, answers to right, this. Right. But there's no easy answers to any of the things that would, you know, to dealing with loss, to dealing with grief, to dealing with that as the result of loss and grief, we sometimes intentionally and accidentally do harm to others. And that that's that shouldn't be dismissed. That shouldn't be, uh, you know, we shouldn't be just automatically absolved of the ripple effects and ramifications of what we do. But... At the same time, uh, I would like to believe that there is a substance, like we've talked about with the canker man, there's a substance underneath that threat, underneath that that vicious, terrifying, we'll call it a monster, there's there's still the heartbeat of a child hmm. that, that we would like to believe can be reached and can be pleaded with. Now, again... There could be listeners who are saying, well, how do you deal with systemic racism? Well, how do you deal with uh, predatory, abusive behavior? I, we, we're savvy enough. You know, <laughs> those like, are we're savvy big. Enough, those are big. You know, like we're savvy enough to recognize that there, that there are absolutely, you know, there are absolutely um, subjects that cannot be whittled down to a bumper sticker. Right. But, but what we're talking about is something that, you know, our Lord well, did it's about, us it's to, about seeing the individual pain of an individual person, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. Which is there any other definition for loving your enemy? Hmm. And, and that is what our Lord compelled us to, you know, is, and, and that is, I mean, that's an unqualified statement when the Lord gives to us, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you and hurt you. You know, it's like that, that, that is an unqualified statement statement to us. Does it mean we don't hold them accountable? Of course it doesn't mean that. 
Does it mean that we are supposed to, you know, uh, we talked at length uh, last week about Gerald's game. Does it mean then that we are not to strive to push people forward uh, and break free from the eclipse of abuse and break free from the eclipse of, of trauma? Uh, no, of course it doesn't mean that. But I think there is still a way in which the compulsion to love our enemy is in seeing, like you put it, seeing the individual and the individual pain in the individual that, uh, that is driving so much of this. And maybe there is an embrace that can be extended that would dissolve and diffuse those threats and would wake all of us up to the power to manifest beautiful things as opposed to manifesting nightmares. I, I would like to believe that's possible. I would like to believe it's probable, particularly in kingdom living. Sure. I would like to believe that, that there, is, there is a balm in Gilead that will take years and years of the pain and can produce something better. And it, it, it's hard work, and there's loss associated with it, and there's absolutely going to be some sacrifice on behalf of those who would extend an embrace. Um, but it is, it is perhaps possible to reach forward to that, to where the monster would dissolve. There's an old Peter Gabriel song. I keep referencing all these random things. There's an old Peter Gabriel song called Darkness, and it is um, structured, the song itself is structured like a horror film. I know that may sound like a horror piece. Um, I know that may sound a bit odd, but if you listen to the song, there is literally a jump moment in the first 15 seconds of the song. Um, But... Uh, it's about monsters, and there's a line in it where he says, uh, the monster I was so afraid of um, lies curled up on the floor, just like a baby boy. And I, I do think there is something uh, in our heartbeat as believers and as followers of Christ, as individuals, to, um, to look for and seek to embrace the, the child at the heart of the, of the monster, and we can appeal to that, and we can plead to that, and we can seek to see uh, the child in them that maybe the Lord sees when he looks at them and, and sees the, the, the element of his fearful and wonderful creation that has been enshrouded in these monstrous elements, you know. Uh, but I'm I mean, just, that, I mean, that I'm really— all over the place. That's all right. It, um, I mean, that really is the essence of a Christ-like— spirit and bent right it's yeah looking on the heart you know seeing what is beneath the facade like right you know i mean it's 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 very much a faithful perspective to adopt to be able to do that um absolutely but it is absolutely not it that absolutely does not come without intentional kind of cultivation you know absolutely absolutely and I mean, we could, I mean, we could go on and on for that for, for hours more, but I mean, I feel, I feel like that's kind of, that's kind of the question the film leaves us with. And maybe that's the question that the, that we should leave this conversation with is how do, how do we cultivate that? How do we begin to strive towards that and allow that to manifest in our hearts and in just, our minds? Just start hugging people. Just <laughs> <laughs> ask him first, ask first. Don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't we go talked randomly. about consent don't last week yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, well uh, unless you had something which I would welcome if you do but unless you had something more uh, pertinent to, to add then uh, do you want to do you want to go to the fog meter for before I wake I do otherwise the butterflies are going to start coming out because I'm going to fall asleep on you brother 
<laughs> so, uh, yeah, um, let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the fog meter is a very specific metric based on our name, the name of our show. Um, we measure things in terms of fear and God, uh, frights and substance at the root of it. Um, I'll go first for fear, despite Flanagan's sort of persistence that this is not uh, technically a horror film. There are some very effective and alarming frights in them. I'm gonna I'm gonna land at a six on the on the fear meter for this. I think this has got some some legitimate and, and genuinely unnerving frights to it. You took mine. I was about to curb it down a hair, but then I was like, no, man. I had to run up the stairs because I was worried the canker man was gonna get me. Like, <laughs> it's effective. So yeah, I'm gonna go with a six on this one as well. As far as the God meter, like, I mean, it's right there. It's it's very much yeah. in the DNA. I, there's there's a world where we could have a, a longer conversation about exactly what we think of the the kind of coda that she gives in terms of the you know happy ending idea but in terms of right, just right. the notion of how you reach someone i think there's a lot of there's a lot to pull out there there's a lot to tease out there there's a lot at work there so i i think i may land at a 7 on the on the god meter there all right all right i i'm i'm kind of right there with you that coda is complicated uh but i again as i mentioned earlier i found it so beautiful this idea man i'm not pivoting us back into it but i'll just make this comment that you know that there there are ways in which cody's gift is a literal manifestation of things in his subconscious and there are ways in which she's pivoting him at that end towards manifesting things intentionally manifesting a better ending for that bully manifesting a better ending for the one that the canker man has consumed manifesting a better ending for daddy as he you know she refers to uh to mark her husband so there are ways in which we can manifest and that's a that's a powerful sentiment sure uh, so i so i think in terms of the god meter in terms of substance like the way the the film is interested in ways we manifest things that are subterranean in our spirits and for that alone i'm going to give it an 8 i mean it's affecting uh in, in i mean ways. i didn't know flannel graph flanagan was going to be so appropriately named <laughs> that's a good point that's a good point so that means that we give uh and again the fog meter the fog meter is more brutal than our previous metric but we give uh before i wake 6.75 let's be very specific here we give it 6.75 out of 10 on the fog meter. I think it is uh, that that is a fair showing for its fright and substance uh, measurements. Um, but I would ask you, Mr. Nathan Rouse, before you zone out on it, before you sleep, before you before you conk out on me, um, would you recommend before I wake? <laughs> We're revealing our secrets here. Um, <laughs> yes, I think it's definitely. A, I mean, once I sort of clicked in on the kind of like fairy tale slash fable type of idea it's it's which doesn't mean that it's bad without that but like it made more sense to me and i could kind of follow its rhythms better but yeah i definitely recommend it gotcha uh this is a very wholehearted recommendation for me this is an an unqualified recommendation for me if you like scary films if you like thought-provoking films if you just like good filmmaking i really think before I wake is worth checking out. I would recommend it to almost anybody. Um, I think it's got some really good scares, but doesn't is not so sort of deep in them that you can't uh, sort of come up to the light in the film. It's got a, a 
wonderful emotional center. Yeah, I wholeheartedly recommend Before I Wake. I think everybody should see it. And, I mean, I just want to commit to you, Reed, that, you know, between now and Hush, I'm going to be back in fighting form, okay? Like, I'm just, I'm just all right, you know. All right, all right. I know like we, the, we're struggling. The canker, the canker man's, like, holding me down, brother. <laughs> um, <Okay>. <laughs> but you know what? I, I, one of my biggest takeaways from this film is I really hope that, that that Thad Jane guy gets some more work. He's I hope so, man. You know, yeah. He's he really he pretty good. He's pretty good. I like I like him as a performer. You maybe, know, he's living in his brother's shadow. Maybe but, get yeah, a haircut. Like maybe get a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> um all right everybody. So uh next week we will continue on with Flannel Graph Flanagan. Uh, we're going to be covering episode nine of The Haunting of Hill House, and we will be covering the Netflix film. Uh, it's actually not a Netflix original film, but it is on Netflix, directed by Mike Flanagan, starring his wife, Katie Siegel. Hush. Oh, my gosh, if you have not seen this film, I'm very excited for you because, uh, yes, it's it's great, and I think you'll dig it. So, and yes, may- check maybe, out Hush. Maybe the outro to that episode can be the song... Um, voices carry about till Tuesday, which was Amy Mann's former band because it's hush hush. You know that song. Come on, you know that that's song. a super deep cut to bring it's in. A deep on cut. It's not even the episode. Well, right when you it's said not it, even right, the episode. No, but next week I'm just preempting. <laughs> oh, you just oh yeah, you're just getting in early. Read, okay, I, before I, I wake, I need sleep. <laughs> okay, like I can't okay. wake if I'm not asleep. So fair, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> All right, brother. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Listeners, as always, thank you very much for listening. We'll catch you next week. See you next week, guys. Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go Good night, sweetheart. Well, it's time to go I hate to leave you, but I really must say, oh, Good night, sweetheart. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. You can continue this conversation in a variety of ways. On Twitter, at The Fear of God. On Instagram, at Fear of God Podcast. You can like or follow us on Facebook or join the Fear of God Facebook discussion group. You can follow Reed on Twitter, at Reed Lackey, and Nathan, at The Nathan Rouse. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com or visit morethanonelesson.com to comment on the official episode posts. And lastly, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Sweetheart, well, it's time to...